I always think people should have a knowledge of the industry they're going into or a desire to learn the industry they're going into. And then with that knowledge, existing knowledge, it's got to be you or your business partner. And so I formed a 50-50 partnership first. We were doing real estate deals together, which was great because it kind of formed trust as we were buying things together. He was providing the funds, I was adding value and then taking the debt out and paying it back. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. When I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. I'm your host, Jake Harris. Today, I have James Richardson, the business buying Brit. Uh, He has actually been diving into buying small businesses. Uh, He has used his experience as an accountant, an accountant from the big four uh, financial firm. You know, he was based in London, then New York, and then was working on all these corporate restructuring um, and, and, you know, fixing companies financially, big multi-million dollar, you know, uh, and maybe billion dollar companies as well. And he is then taking that skill set and then applied it to buying small businesses. And so he's got some really interesting insights and he, he takes action. Uh, it is, is super exciting. And also make sure to listen for how music and his study of music it, uh, played into uh, some of his opportunities that he is now looking at and wait for the end. He actually gives some super exciting insights on uh, what I think is one of the best little tidbits of nuggets about a book um, that has made a a huge impact on his life. So let's jump right in to Passive Wealth Principles with James Richardson. Hey, James, I am super excited to have you on the show today. James Richardson, the business buying Brit. I I think this is a topic that is super relevant. And I think it's something that you've been doing for a little while that is like, um, maybe catching some trends, but you've already been doing it. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Jake. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, so um, I would like to, and you, know, and, and you and I have had some conversations and connected together and we're in some masterminds together. And um, I, I would like, you know, for the audience and, and I'll, in your own words, kind of give us a little bit of a background. And then there's some nuggets that I want to pull out of there that I think are relevant to what we're going to talk about today. So give a few minutes, you know, from, from birth until today, uh, and a few minutes, like the, the backstory of James. 
Yeah, sure. And if you want to draw out anything along the way, please jump in. But uh, I'm obviously not from uh, Nashville, where I currently reside, where my home is. I grew up in the UK. Um, I didn't study at college. Like, people always go back to, like, oh, do you have to have a certain degree, an MBA, all this stuff to buy businesses? The answer is no. Um, I actually have a music degree, which a lot of people don't know. Um, And so I was always good at school. Like I'm I'm talking English style here, like school, school, like growing up. I was always really good at math and I was always really good at music. And then when I got to like university age, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. So I was like, well, music sounds much more fun than math. So I'm going to get a degree in that. But as it got to the end of my degree, I realized I was the music student who read the Financial Times for fun. And like no one else... Everyone else was then going to go and work in like the UK equivalent of Walmart kind of thing to try and make it, you know, in a band. And I was like, I really don't want to do that. So I then tried to like backpedal and then find my way into accounting. So I managed to somehow scrape my way into a large accountancy firm in the UK. So it's a global firm, actually. And so that's where I started getting involved in you know, learning from scratch, really, at that point, like how to read financial statements, do accounting, the old debits and credits. Um, And I found myself working in London as a kind of young adult. Um, London is a fantastic city. But what happened in my late 20s, I had the opportunity uh, to move to America. So we had we were trying to do like a loan program between the London office and the New York office. I was late 20s, single, and was like, please, please, can I do this? And please, can no one else interview for the job? Like, I I want that job. So managed to find my way to Madison Avenue, where I was working. Um, I think I moved 28, 29, uh, back in 2015. Um, And so at this point, I'd moved from just core uh, core accounting into uh, restructuring, which I'd found to be the most interesting part of the accounting firm I was working in restructuring and turnaround is where you kind of come in. It can be early stage distress and do consulting work with businesses that have seen a downturn in results, or it can be late stage where it's kind of too late and there's a lot of balance sheet stuff work you have to do in terms of restructuring that balance sheet to make the business viable, often with uh, using a chapter 11 proceedings or something like that to reorganize. So I went from being this music student to having all of this kind of financial experience. And I think that was good for me because I know we're going to get into business buying, but I'm not someone who probably would have jumped into this world if I hadn't had that experience. But what's interesting to draw is you don't actually have to have the background I've had, but I think I probably didn't have those confidence levels. I often admire admire Americans because when I arrived in this country, everyone seems like super confident all the time. Maybe it was in New York where I was working, but I was like, wow, British people often like self-deprecate and like, oh, I couldn't possibly do this. I, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's like, built into how we do things. Whereas I was like, everyone in America's so competent uh, and just knows what they're doing. But it's just like kind of built into the culture that you guys present yourself so well and we don't necessarily. Um, So, you know, roll this forward. Like I've been working for 12 and a half years for this accounting firm. And I eventually got to a point where I was like, the next step, I'd gone all the way up from associate all the way to director, which is the second highest and the next one is partner. And I just knew that if I'd gone for the partnership track, that ultimately I don't think I would have been happy with my job. Like I was so grateful for the opportunity to travel, traveled around the world doing cool projects with businesses, which, you know, built my skill set, my confidence level. But I knew that my passion lay in small businesses. 
And uh, there's something about like, you know, when you're working with these huge multi-billion dollar companies, it's kind of cool, but everyone's an employee. And a, a lot of people in, in those organizations like don't care, in my opinion. Whereas when you work with a small business, an owner who's built something, you know, blood, sweat and tears for 30 years, I find that so exciting. And I guess I'd always wanted to to move into this space. And we can... you. I'll let I'll pause there to see where you want to go, but like it wasn't a straight jump from career into buying businesses. While I had my W two, I was laying the foundations by buying real estate for about a decade, and I'm very grateful I did that because I again that wouldn't have allowed me to do the jump if I hadn't done the foundation building. Yeah, that is. Um, there's a handful of things I I, I love that you you touched in on the music because that was one of the things that I had in my notes and I was like how does a bachelor's degree in music from the University of Leeds lead into uh you know accounting like I was just like a PwC you know big four firm doing I was like how'd that happen so um I'd love you to kind of first start there like a little bit more like you know, what type of music or what was it? Did you play an instrument? And how did that study of music then maybe give you some of the foundations for what you're you're doing today? I like that question because music, I think some people are just super creative. And I think I always approach music from a formula perspective. I actually, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. So I can play quite a lot of different instruments, but not to a level where, you know, I'd be professional kind of thing. So as I progressed through music, I think I honed in on songwriting. I did a lot of songwriting um, and I approached all of the songs uh, like they're, they're formulas. Like you can play with different things, you know, like say if you've got a guitar, you can play with the tunings of the strings, come up with a really wacky tuning, which creates like amazing like voicings of the chords. But ultimately you're still putting together um, certain formulas that you know work to create pop music um, and that's interesting because that kind of has come back when it comes to buying businesses because that's a formula as well so I don't think I was ever like super creative but I like to be creative within the confines of something I know works so I kind of like that question I mean how I got into accounting I somehow scraped the interview but like they make you do these tests and so thankfully I managed to get through the verbal reasoning the logic test and the numbers test so fortunate in that regard yeah, and that's uh, it, it, the reason I asked that is it was actually one of the most profound things that I had ever heard was an interview by Rick Rubin. Um, you know, if you're the the music producer mm -hmm. Rick Rubin, and he was talking about you know he has had all these super diverse music groups, Justin Bieber and Eminem and Metallica and like you know just like things that you're just like does not make sense. Like, how is that, you know, a rapper, Jay-Z, you know, and, you know, pop music and the ones that he produced oftentimes, uh, you know, were the best selling of the ones. And people are like, that's the best music that that person or that group ever created. And in, in, you know, the reason being was what he talked about was he's like, I'm not trying to hit like number one on the the record label. I'm not trying to hit some kind of matrix. What I'm trying to do is trying to pull out the best version of, you know, 
James. I'm mm. trying to pull out the best Metallica, the best Metallica of Metallica. So like really what I'm doing is I'm just listening to that and, and exploring those where you have the baseline of the foundation and so many things in life are Eh. But then it's like when those things, it's like looking at a sport and it requires a little bit of a divergent thinking. And that's why I think music, because of that, there's formulas that work. But then when there's something that, you know, maybe it's out of worldly, you know, like hits the thing, like you feel it and you're like, wow. I like that because you like let, you're letting things breathe within the confines of what works. So like, yeah, you may have a Bieber or another top selling artist, but you kind of try and create the best version of them. And, and but they still know the form. They know that, you know, chords one, four, five and six, you throw in a three minor or what, you know, whatever it is, will create like a awesome pop track. Um but within that confines, you kind of let that space for them to almost take the pressure off. And it's kind of similar business buying in a way, like there's a structure that works, but then you have to actually get out there, meet people, let relationships develop naturally. And as it, as that kind of comes about, and as you just start to do that, all of a sudden you start to see this wave of opportunities come in. Uh, but it's less about like, I must get a seller over the line this week. You know, it's just letting it breathe in the same way. Yeah. And it, I mean, I, I think your background is something that I think is incredibly fascinating um, because of this. And I, I know, you know, you probably have the statistics or know more about this is like, I don't know what it is like, you know, 3 million businesses or 10 million businesses are for sale. And like 95% of them never sell. They just close down and go away. And as someone that has been a business owner and been involved or investors in them, the vast majority of businesses are not going to sell because they suck and they don't make money. Mm -hmm. And so like, but uh, I was saying your specific skill sets of restructuring and, you know, reorganizing and doing those other things. So talk to me about that. You come to, you know, the States, you come to New York, you're working on restructuring these kind of corporate uh, clients and going through chapter 11. So like that experience and, and maybe give, if you can, you know, we can protect the, the, you know, people, but like, what are some of those like stories about that you learned in that, that you're now applying to some of the business, uh, buying principles of small businesses today? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's several lessons that I pull out, um, in my course that I teach on how to buy a small business. Um, it's funny, just a quick side note before we go into some specific stories, like despite having a background in turnaround and restructuring, I don't recommend people start buying businesses uh, that are turnarounds like that is very stressful and actually I have a, a young family and I made the decision to move away from that yes at some point maybe I'd go back into that just because I have some experience there and most people don't but um I, I don't recommend just for listeners like if you are interested in buying businesses I would stay away from um turnarounds and I'd try and go for a slam dunk for your first deal because that will impact your ability to do deal two three four five um, so that, that's one point, but I mean, I try and link the, the lessons that I teach back to stories. So for example, the last, one of the last deals I did was like a, it's a pharmaceutical brand kind of in new England area and they had one product and that one product failed and it was a horrible, um, kind of mix of COVID came in exactly the same time as a component failed. Like they got a sole source supplier for one tiny little rubber piece in their product that they sold 
and that piece was faulty. So all of their products were then not able to be sold. And at that time, they were, and this is all public information, but that company was about to be sold uh, as a going concern, like a successful business to for over $100 million. And then all of a sudden, COVID hits, the product uh, is not even viable in any way. They bleed cash, and their whole business is in jeopardy. And so you could be forgiven at that point looking at the business and say, it's not viable anymore. They don't have a product. They don't have any cash. COVID's hit. No one even knows when the factory's going to be open again. Um, yet the business was able to sell, and they sold to a strategic. So that's an example on like what's a financial buyer versus a strategic buyer. I'm a financial buyer. I buy for cash flow, where some people want to buy a company um, for strategic reasons. And it was a, a European company that wanted a US platform in that space with the right licenses and things to then launch other products. So there's a lesson there for people, which is you may not see value in something, but there is there may be value to someone else. Um, and so that's a lesson I like to draw out for my students, um, just one of many. And then in terms of other deals I've done, like I've done some really large ones, um, really large kind of multi-billion dollar restructurings and then also some some of the smaller ones and i think it was all great experience but i think i the lessons learned in the smaller ones uh prepared me better for what i do now yeah i think you you just you know tapped on a few things that i'd love for you to uh dive into a little bit more just because you know this podcast is about you know passive wealth and you know i i think there's some terminology that um I'm a little bit familiar with because I've, you know, spoke at some private equity groups and done some things like that. But I like that the financial versus strategic buyer and then also kind of like a platform company. So if kind of dive into that, like as a financial buyer and a strategic buyer, how those are different and then how what you are doing as a, a buyer. And I'm assuming most of the time you're guiding in your course or the, the, the program people to be more towards financial. But, you mm -hmm. know, uh, how is it? What are those differences and talk us through those definitions? Yeah, sure. So we, if especially um, if we are all focused on passive income, I mean, I'm not really, I don't really believe necessarily fully in passive income because my brain's still there in the businesses I'm buying. So I think my route is less passive than some of your other guests you have on. Um, but we are financial buyers because I'm not buying for any strategic reason. I am buying purely for cash flow. And when I started out the gates, so I was like, I have to replace my W2 income as soon as possible. So I'm buying the opportunities that I see that will build up the cash flow to replace my salary. So that's what a financial buyer strategic means. Like, let's just say you're an, um, a roofing company or, you know, whatever electrical company, and then you go out and buy strategically, like you're buying other uh, companies that are the same, but maybe smaller. And you can afford to pay more because maybe you've modeled out that the back end system, you could keep the same. And so when you buy the new electrical company, you roll it into your existing electrical company and your back office team can remain the same because they have the capacity to take on a few extra contracts and things like that. So that's more on the strategic side of things. If you're a financial buyer and you're competing at strategic, you generally won't win. So when people say, like if I speak to a broker and they say, you know, make an offer, but just bear in mind, you've got a strategic involved. I'll generally just say like, that's great news for the family. And like that, congratulations. Like, it, I don't think I'm going to be able to compete with that because they'll nine times out of nine times out of nine, they'll, they'll pay more for the business than, than I want to. So that's that kind of difference. 
And then on the platform side, um, just to explain that, in the words, in typical private equity language, you have, um, if you're just narrowing down on one industry, that first business is kind of a platform. That's how it's referred to. So you may buy that first uh, you know, electrical business again. That's a platform. And then you buy the smaller electrical companies, and those are called roll-ups. So you kind of roll them up into the platform and you make that platform bigger. The reason private equity does that is there's a lot of money to be made in the aggregation of smaller companies. The, the, the risk factor goes down as the platform grows. Um, let's just pick easy numbers. Like let's say you've got a company that does 500K in earnings. As that grows to 2 million in earnings, like that is much less risky from a you know private equity perspective if they're buying a two million dollar uh, earnings company they feel much better it's much more de-risked because it's not just going to disappear overnight in theory that's a theory anyway so that's where there's a lot of money to be made in the aggregation i'm not really doing that i'm buying because i care about the small businesses and i really do care about the legacy of the people that we're buying from so i'm just trying to buy at the moment like sensible looking businesses they all kind of touch real estate that's the niche i'm kind of building over time but I'm not, you know, aggressively going out to do add-ons and then I'm not I have no plans to sell at the moment as well. So a lot of private equity will come in, they'll have a view of like somewhere between three and seven years time, they will try and flip the business to someone else um for a much higher multiple, so much higher exit. But that's not really my model, but that's how private equity typically works. Yeah, I appreciate that that diving in because that's exactly you know, people have different fun models. Uh, and I, and I think obviously, you know, to give, you know, you probably have a lot of experience in this as well, but like private equity groups typically don't look at small businesses just because it's the same amount of work to go do a business that makes $500,000, you know, uh, you know, cash flow or sellers discretionary earnings as it is to do one that has $5 million in EBITDA. You know, like mm-hmm. it's the same amount of work. It's the same steps, the same process as just the, the numbers have moved over. The decimals have moved over a little bit. And so, but the, the risk versus reward, you get a two X return, you know, you, you double the, the EBITDA or the seller's discretionary earnings, you know, from 500,000 to a million neat, you know, you get, you get your little cut 20% of that as a private equity group. When you're putting these funds together, you're like, cool, we made $200,000 versus the 5 million to 10 million. Now all of a sudden that's a $2 million check for the same amount of time, the same amount of effort. And so like a lot of them, their buying criteria is just like, we're not touching anything that small businesses because it's not yeah. worth the brain damage that, or the amount of effort that's doing it. And that's why I think what you have is you have that private equity experience in the corporate. And, and I love that you also mentioned on like, don't jump into a, a restructure or a turnaround, you know, as far as because even though you have experience in that, and I would say, and, and my question is coming in is like, what have you learned from those is maybe in your due diligence that has helped you prepare for like when you're coming into acquisitions, like, Ooh, this seems more risky to me that it's, you know, could be early stage distress versus a late stage or thing that you then are evaluating some of these businesses or that have higher risk as a buyer that maybe other small business uh, buyers are not mm-hmm. aware of. 
one of the uh, the things, if you take a step back with the funds as well, like they're often raising money from institutional investors. So they're not going out and raising like 50 grand from an institutional investor. You know, it's millions, tens, hundreds of millions. So when these have this much, I hate to use like finance speak, but like dry powder to deploy into deals, they're just not going to be looking at these deals that do under a million dollars in earnings. So that's another reason why they're just not interested. And our time's limited, like you said. Um, in terms of like what I look for, I have a, you know, I have a criteria of what I look for. I really like buying companies from people who are retiring. Um, it's just a niche that I'm finding. One of the reasons is I know a lot of PE groups like startups, but I don't. I like companies that have been around for decades. Um, it gives me a level of comfort about what I'm buying. If it's been known in the community for several decades, I can sleep better at night knowing it's probably not going to disappear overnight. Um, and companies don't really generally go bust just overnight that's pretty rare normally it's just a slow decline over time so as long as you're buying something that's been around for a long time and you have a good system in place for monitoring the business then uh, you should get early indications of you know any kind of decline so you can get in there and fix it and change the strategy or whatever else needs to be fixed in order to make sure the business continues and grows yeah that i i love that that the the buying for somebody that's retiring i think that's a great great little piece of of insight um i just like talking to the people that have done this as well like it's just um this isn't just about money for me um uh, you know when you connect with someone who's you know they're not all this this profile but let's say 60 years old and they've worked passionately at something like it's great to hear the stories like i really am interested in that i think if you go into this game or this world of small business buying and you only care about money Ultimately, I don't think you're going to be as successful as if you actually engage a bit of empathy, kindness, like curiosity and get to know people, build relationships. Like I try really hard to keep good relationships with my sellers after the deal's done as well. Like I spoke with one of the sellers this week on the phone. I was just in the car and they called and we had a really nice catch up about how life's going and they've taken up gardening and all of this stuff, which is just great to hear. Like I'm I'm thrilled that they're thriving and they're thrilled that our business is thriving as well since the transaction and that's kind of what i'm interested in here yeah i i i 100 agree i think there's so many of those people that like you said retiring and, and i i've seen this uh, a lot as far as the the 30 years of blood sweat and tears that go into building a business and so i i think that is the uh, like, like you even said before is uh, I think there's a big disillusionment of like you go buy a business and it's going to be passive and it's like the reality and the the person that put in all of that, you know, hard, hard work and that their kids oftentimes see that, see dad or mom stressed out. You know, the times when it's rough, when there's a recession, when there's a pandemic, when their you know, interest rates, when their biggest client fires them, you like whatever those things, they feel that in a family environment. And so they actually are alienated from that business where they're like, there's no way in hell I want to go take that business over. And that's been like the totality of their succession plan, or they never even succession planned it at all. And then it's just like, oh man, none of my kids actually want this business. Now what do I do? And the alternative is, like you said, a 30-year business that is maybe not 
super tech centric or, you know, have the greatest sales system or anything else, but it's just like, it's there. And the alternative is it closed down. It's so true. And uh, if you are listening to this and you have a business and you don't know what to do with it, honestly, like reach out to me because I'm starting to, yeah, yes, I buy myself, but I can't buy every company that comes my way now that I'm building this kind of online brand. Um, I'm connected now with a community of people who are kind of younger, hungry people who want to buy these businesses. So I'm more than happy to try and play matchmaker between seller and buyer as well. That's something I'm exploring as well with my business now. Like, what does 2024 look like? I've got some ideas mapped out but it's kind of exciting to see how this will develop because like you said like there's so many of these businesses out there and it's what you said and it's also well documented that people who are maybe uh kind of closer to our age they don't want to go into manufacturing and kind of traditional blue collar jobs like they want to they want the office jobs they want the you know like some of the tech companies you they provide breakfast, lunch, and dinner for you in the office. Like all of that's kind of what they want. They don't want to roll up their sleeves and be out in the sun and work hard and that kind of stuff. So again, it's like a vacuum of people that want to do that. In addition to the fact that maybe some of the kids have been burned by seeing some of the stressful times at home. Well, that's, uh, and I tell you this because I, I want to dive into a little bit of your business buying, but there was a, a business that I saw that in, and it happened to be at the very tail end of it as far as the, the guy was closing it down. It was a paving company. They made pavers, they manufactured pavers and they'd been around for 50 years. And like, they had this like very long history. It was down in Texas and they like paved all the streets in downtown San Antonio and in Fort Worth. And, and they're like, we had like they you know, I was talking to the old guy there and he was uh, that I think he was in his eighties and he was like, you know, we don't even like have a sales team. Just we have, um, we had, they had a, co- a couple of molds that they made for some paving companies that they would do. And then they would have architect designers that would like seek them out to do, you know, Hey, can you do this project for us? And basically they were just asking them to do the project. And he was like, but they hardly did anything that uh, a fax machine and a little old lady that wrote on carbon copy stuff for the paperwork. And they were doing, you know, I didn't get into the financials, but millions of dollars, I think, in revenue. And then ultimately, he was just selling the land and he sold the equipment for scrap metal pricing. So a big oh. mixer and the other things like that. And I was just like, I would. I would have, I would have bought this from you. Like, I was just like, I, Oh my gosh. Like to have something like that with 50 years of history, people are just begging you has no sales team, no website. You know, you got to chase them down to, to, to do that in those stories. And then it was ultimately, he just wanted to sell the land. He was in contract and that's where he made all his money. He made a few million dollars off the land um, because he had owned it for such a long time. Mm-hmm. But I was just like, what's the scrap metal of a paving, you know, mixer, things like that, $50,000 or something like that. And it was like probably hundreds of thousands of dollars that he initially invested into it and a labor force that knew how to do this and ship and the logistics. And I was just like, Oh no, so sad. So one of the, um, one of the companies that we actually uh, brought into our portfolio, you know, family of companies this year was a paver business. We make concrete pavers. So that's so sad. Like, I wish I'd known too. I mean, that would have yeah, been... And that's exactly part- what I was going to say. I wanted to dive in just like how you bought that. And I know that you've done some things like paving and, you know, construction and other things like that. So tell me about your journey and expect specifically why you've 
had some affinity towards those types of companies and tell us about that paving company. Hey, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk about something I get asked about quite a lot. Who does my social media video edits? Well, lucky day, I'm gonna share that now. It's Fat Unicorn Media. Whether you're in real estate or not, Fat Unicorn Media is super clever with some very exciting video edits on the short form video content. And they specialize in it for real estate professionals. They know how to talk like real estate pros because that's exactly what they do as their niche specialty. If you're looking to elevate your video content and social media game, visit them at Fat unicornmedia.com and book a free 15 minute call to see if they can help you too. It's been a game changer for me. It's freed up so much of my time. They are literally the who, not the how. I believe it'll work for you as well. Thanks to Fat Unicorn Media for sponsoring today's episode. And now back to the show. I always think people should have a knowledge of the industry they're going into or a desire to learn the industry they're going into. And then with that knowledge, existing knowledge, it's got to be you or your business partner. And so I formed a 50-50 partnership first with a friend of mine here. And while I was building the real estate, uh, while I had my job, I, I had a private money lender. And um, this was this is the guy that's now my, uh, my business partner. But we were doing real estate deals together, which was great because it kind of formed trust as we... Well, he was providing the funds, I was adding value and then taking the debt out and paying it back. Um, all that to say, John has a lot of experience in construction. That's actually one of the industries I do not have experience in. So I was nervous about the industry and I wouldn't have done construction without him. I would have waited for another industry. So that's how I got into construction. And the first one that presented itself was a retaining wall company. It came with a small trucking operation, which was a separate business. Uh, but really we've rolled it all together and it's a, it's a retaining wall company we install we're one of the leading installers if not the leading installer of retaining walls in Nashville Tennessee and um, we chose it because we connected with the seller and it just came about and I always believe people should look for the opportunity right in front of them but I mean we can dive into that but from there came a roofing company and then after that concrete pavers and now we're kind of branching out a little outside of construction and looking at some more home service type businesses and things like that. But that's how it got started. It wasn't like an intentional decision, like I must do construction. It was there. We tried to make the numbers work and we decided, let's jump in and give this a go. What, um, and I say this as far as, you know, uh, I've made lots of mistakes in, in business <laughs> over the years as far as, and it's usually, um, and not until I make them. And then I discover after the fact that I've made some of those mistakes and, you know, sometimes, you know, flipping lots of houses or buying, you know, old buildings or other things you get into it and you're like, ah, dang it. I wish I would have known that. Um, so I was like, if you could kind of give like a couple of little like things that you've realized out of these businesses, now that you've been acquiring them or adding to them, what would you say now that you would advise yourself, younger James, before you got into this, maybe to look out for or how you maybe would, you know, what you've learned so far? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd say the portfolio as a whole now, I think in terms of main business holdings, we've got three main businesses, but I'm, I'm excluding some of the smaller pieces that maybe been rolled up or, you know, smaller holdings elsewhere. So out of those three, 
we've got one business that has been knocking it out of the park and the growth has exceeded all of my expectations. We've had one that is meeting expectations, which I'm happy with, but it's not, you know, setting the world on fire. And then we have another one, which uh, I, I mean, I've learned stuff with all businesses, but I have one that is underperformed. And then I've had to like jump in with some of the restructuring ideas. So like, how do we, you know, change things around to try and get it back to a point where it's good. So on the whole, it's good, but I have had all of those different types of experience doing these businesses and like try let's distill it down to some lessons. I could go on for ages probably, so let's just see where I go with this. Uh, one thing I noticed time and time again with myself and then with people now that I'm helping do this, it's very easy to get emotionally tied to these opportunities. Um it's a little different to a piece of real estate in my opinion. These are often you're buying, you know, a brand name, established brand name, a collection of people, and maybe a, an office, but it's you can somehow get much more emotionally tied to a potential business opportunity. And that first one is so important. So I would say just take your time, look out for red flags of like maybe, you know, having to rush a deal for like X, Y, Z. Like I've, this isn't my experience, but a friend of mine told me that he ended up he ended up buying a business from a seller who told him that he had cancer in order to sell the business and he did not have cancer and that that's a real story and my friend's just like such a nice guy with a big heart and he jumped in and he's again managed to stabilize and exit that position himself so it was it's a good story for him and a learning lesson but like you have to take everything with a grain of salt you want to believe the best of what you're hearing but you have to trust and verify so Take your time with the diligence. The business, if it's been around for 20 years, it's not going anywhere. So, like, don't rush it. Um, There's a flip side to that because I see a lot of people get analysis paralysis and they never actually make the jump. But my personality is more like, okay, let's just jump in and figure it out. So I'm kind of more action-oriented. So if if you're listening and you're like me, just slow down a little, take your time. And so don't get too emotional. It's number one. Uh, Number two... You won't know everything about the business before you buy it. Like diligence is great and you want to go into that. You want to do your financial diligence, your legal diligence, get a good insurance agent to review all the insurance policies that they currently have and whether you can make some savings and improve coverage, things like that. Um, But you will never on day one know everything. And on day one, like you'll arrive and you'll think like, what on earth do I do now? Like I literally own this business. But you have to think about the people first. Connect with the people it's about the relationships that you'll build with them over time, like get to know them. Often you're kind of protected from a lot of the people in the office leading up to the transaction just in case it falls apart. So a lot of them you probably don't really meet until day one. And so you want to build those relationships. You want to find out about them, the families. They will have amazing ideas about what you could do in the business to improve it. Often the people that have worked there for several years will give you much better ideas than you come up with yourself about where things could change and be modernized so yeah people first um you won't know everything you kind of just got to go with the flow a little um i would say number three establish a a regular cadence meeting cadence like straight away other than that you kind of need that for those first few months to be an observer to learn as much as you can soak up all this information but um, i use the traction system um, which i'm sure you're aware of So there's a weekly level 10 meeting that talks about in that book, which is a 90 minute meeting every week. 90 minutes sounds like a lot, but if you actually do that with the leaders of the business, then it actually stops you meeting with all these like ad hoc meetings through the week. 
And so we establish that straight away, gets everyone together, same agenda, same time, same place, starts on time, ends on time. And it, you make sure you run through all the nuts and bolts. You get the scorecard set up. That means you can start tracking the leading indicators of the business straight away. Because um, you don't want to take your eye off the ball while you're kind of learning the business uh, from the inside out. I don't know. I could probably talk for ages on this. I'll pause, see where you want to go from here. Yeah, no, I, I think that was a, a couple of great nuggets. I mean, number one, as far as, you know, rushed, you know, components, I know that is a, a situation that, you know, um, when buying distressed real estate, you know, what we're ultimately trying to do is figure out, find out what that problem is so that, you know, like, Hey, what's the problem that we're solving? Mm hmm in a healthy business or something that's operating, you know, like why, and that's obviously a, a good question. Why is the, the owner selling, you know, as mm -hmm. far as from the, the component that you're talking about, they're retiring. Okay. You know, like that gives you a, a better context of what is going on within the business versus like, we're trying to outrun a, a debt, you know, bomb that's coming in. You know, we have a competitor that is moving into the market and, you know, going to take us over or something else like that. You know, um, the people first, I, I, I love that too. And, and exactly I agree is like, you're, you're not going to know those people. They're not going to let you go sit down with everyone until, uh, especially in a small business, you know, some of them don't even want to know, let the employees know that they're selling because you could lose key personnel. And especially in a small business, you lose like one or two key people like that could absolutely blow up your business acquisition or the, the future profitability of that. And, but I think the most important thing you said was actually that number three, the scorecard and putting together, you know, tracking stuff because you can measure what matters. And I would just ask you as far as, you know, maybe from these existing businesses or the ones that you've helped other people buy into Oftentimes they don't have any kind of indicators or, you know, lead indicators in there. So how have you been able to do that and put that into a business where it didn't exist previously? And like, how does that take, how do you work through that? Are you just using like an EOS? Do you use an implementer? Are you doing that yourself? Um, because I think that is so important to have something that you can monitor the health of your organization. It's so important. And like we said, businesses rarely go bust overnight. They go bust over a period of time. So you have to find those leading indicators. And it will depend on the business you end up buying. But like, is it uh, square feet installed? You know, depending on what it is. Is uh, Actually, let's take a step back. Because I'm an accountant originally by background, I always start with working capital. I want to know cash balance. I want to know accounts receivable, overdue accounts receivable, accounts payable, and inventory if you a company that has inventory. So... Working capital is super important. That's cash tied up in the business. Uh, if that's unfamiliar to you, it's not as complicated as it sounds. Um, but if you really think about it, accounts receivable, accounts payable, and inventory is all cash. But it's just cash not actually in your bank at that particular point in time. So you need to track that. After that, then you need to think about leading indicators. So square feet installed, inspections, inbound calls, like proposals sent out. You want to make sure that those are ticking along. Uh, at a regular cadence so we'll, that lines up with the budget that you've set for the year or the forecast for the year. And so, like, I know that, like, the cash balance won't be great um, in two months from now if we haven't won any jobs in the last uh, <laughs> the last month. So it, I'm trying to catch things as early as you 
as early as I can. So I'm always thinking, like, is there an earlier indicator that would then show me what, you know, two or three months time from now looks like? So that's the mindset. It would vary depending on the company that the listener ends up buying. But I would also say don't go, like, more than 10. Like, you really want to keep it short and sharp. So, like, it's like a snapshot. You just look at it and you can immediately tell good green or red, you know, or, or yellow if you're kind of floating in the average zone. That'd be great. Yeah, I'd love to, you know, is that, would you say the working capital aging of APAR, you know, kind of proposals, are those the kind of the main three that are across all of your companies? Um, or, or is there some that kind of stick out that are like, these are the main things that I've seen in every company that you're involved with? Yeah, I don't know if it's just some of my experience um, as a business consultant when I did it, but you know, some people can be so focused on driving sales, new sales, they forget about the back end. And if you have sales with money in the system, and you've never collected that debt, like money in, then you'll starve your business of cash. So you need to be cash focused. And this is what I say to our accountants as well, because most accountants look backwards, like accountants are their job is to put together financial statements, the balance sheet, profit and loss, the cash flow statement. They'll tell you where you've been and where you're at right now. They don't tell you where you're going. So I'm like, this is great. I need this. Like, this is just, these are the basics, but I need to think about the forecast. So where's our cash balance going? Um, and just in all things, trying to look forward. Like, I, I find that so valuable. And maybe it's just because I've seen the, the AR age so much in clients in the past where I'm like, I'm not going to let that happen to my businesses. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I see that a lot with a lot, not accountants, but also, you know, for CPAs, you know, a historian, you know, basically just going through and documenting what did happen, especially when you're starting to get into tax planning or, you know, strategy, you have to be looking for, you know, what, how are you, you know, even putting your expenses you know, there's different ways in which you can write off expenses to different companies, you know, as far as having a media company, you have additional, you know, deductions and write-offs versus having a manufacturing company, the equipment that you can depreciate. And if you buy them in certain calendar years, like that can, you know, offset your tax planning and other things. So it's like, that I also think is, is super valuable. Is that something that you are doing? Do you hire somebody else to help, you know, help with those projections and forecasts or how is that, that you're solving those things, you know, in your businesses? I'm involved in the weekly level tens, but I don't, I try not to, initially I was uh, trying to volunteer myself for more actions than I should, because I'm not the CEO of these businesses. We're hiring someone who's better than me at the specific field to do that job like I'm trying to find people that that's their superpower to run that type of business in that industry well so I am involved I definitely help set the scorecard but I'm not bringing every idea it's a collaborative approach and then um, in terms of like that integrator role that the traction book talks about that really is the company manager I mean at some point at our holding company level we may hire an integrator to help the company managers in what they do uh, but I'm not the integrator or I am more on the visionary side of like vision casting but with you know this strange like financial component to my history which means I'm always like thinking about cash and finances I love that I, I mean I think that's a great little insight that you just added there you know you're not putting yourself in as the CEO of these these companies and I think that's another thing that I see 
maybe I would say mistake. No, I wouldn't say it's a mistake. It's just I see like most people go buy a job, interject themselves into that business, and they're going to run the, the operations and the day to day and doing those other things. And so again, we're talking passive, active, other things like that. Where it's like if you're just going buying a job, I see this a lot in franchises too. Like people go buy a sandwich shop franchise and then all of a sudden they're working 40 60 80 hours a week in a sandwich shop and you're like really is that what you wanted you're trying to unlock financial freedom and i think that you talked about that starting out with not being the ceo yeah that's my intention um the caveat to that is that some people swing so far that they want to be an absentee owner I think you need to be there. I think you need to check in. You need to know the people that work in the business and get to know them. I think that's really important. But yeah, like honestly, running some of the businesses that I have in my portfolio, like those types of businesses would not be like, I'm not going to do as good of a job as the guys we've hired to do that. Um, and they, and I like to hire people that get real enjoyment out of it. Like having a, you know, a well-oiled machine, you know, it's working well. Like I can see the satisfaction in their eyes when they like get these things finely tuned and working well. And that's the, that's the kind of skill set I'm looking for or like attitude I'm looking for when hiring these people. So I know we got a few more minutes to, to finish up. And so I'd like to first uh, start before I get into my final three questions as far as you know, how did you acquire, and, and again, this is maybe to give some advice to somebody that's looking into getting out of their W-2 or transition. I know you're buying as a financial buyer for cash flow to replace your income right away. So how did you structure that? How'd you buy that first, second, you know, or third deal that, and then how much like, you don't have to give me exact specifics, but like, how'd you structure that deal? Did you have to have millions of dollars? You could buy it with SBA with 10% down. Like, how did you get into doing your first deal? Yeah, so that first deal, the way it works, um, we actually ended up doing 100% seller financing for that first deal, but that was actually a last minute change. We were actually going to go the SBA route. And the SBA route, uh, it's an amazing government scheme if you're not familiar with it, but you can generally put 10% down on a qualifying business to purchase it. And so the purchase price is $1.9 million. The way that we were going to structure that was, and it's different for everyone, but my story was I'd spent 10 years building up real estate, creating this foundation. I would have probably sold a rental property to get, because I'm 50-50 with a, with a partner. To, so to get my 95, I would have sold, which is 10% of 1.9, I would have sold a rental property or I'd made up my mind at that point. I was going to cash in my 401k that I'd built up while working. Um, and I did that anyway for reserves. But that, that, they were my roots, like cash in the 401k or sell like one of the rental properties I built up to, to put my 5% down to then combine with my partner's 5% to buy the business. Um, and then there was a, I, I wouldn't, most businesses won't be 100% seller finance. So I was fortunate in that way that it flipped into 100% seller financing, but that was how we got started. And if you need to, if, if you're listening to this and you don't have that, like partnerships is a good way to go. Like if you got people in your life, you may think, you know, no one that has that kind of money. Um, I would say just like, you got to get out, like, go get out there, go to meetups, meet people like you, you really may do. Like, I think you'd be surprised often. I mean, I'm saying that cause I'm, I'm, I'm a foreigner. I didn't really have like a base 
in the UK. So it's not like I had like, oh, family members I could just go to for like money. Like I, I didn't have that situation. So I always challenge people. It's like, well, I had to kind of get out there and somehow figure out how to do it so other people can too. So that was how I, how I structured it. And then, um, yeah, I think that was your question. Yeah. So, uh, quick rapid fire questions as far as what is the book that you have gifted most to other people? Oh, um, I actually like the go giver. Um, that is a good book. It's a short book and actually you can listen to it on audible in just a few hours. I think you can listen to it in like three or four hours. Um, that is a great book from a mindset perspective thinking it kind of helps people, uh, stop living life so like tight-fisted and trying to clutch every dollar that comes in and live life in a more abundant way where you keep your hands open and you're giving information resources and helping as many people as possible that actually that creates blessing that comes back to you as well so it's kind of win-win i love that book so i've definitely uh, given and recommended that book what is one thing you've spent money on in the last six months that has bought you back the most time we have, my family has a, a wonderful uh, part-time nanny um, with us right now. And my wife and I deliberated that for a long time because um, we, weren't, we weren't familiar with that lifestyle growing up. But that has been amazing for us. And it has not taken away from time with the kids at all. But it's actually helped us structure our lives in a way where we feel like we actually spend better quality time with the kids. That's awesome. The final question is, you know, of the audience. Uh, I know you have your, your coaching program, you know, your Instagram, you know, there's other things like that. So what is the ask of the audience and where can they find you? Yeah, the best place to connect with me is on Instagram. Um, BizBuyingBrit is my handle, BizBuyingBrit. And um, I teach a, a five-week live course on how to buy a small business. It started by accident at the beginning of this year, 2023, when I was a guest on a mastermind and then I've, it's amazing, like coming towards the end of the year, I've had 30 students, I've got 30 people in my community, and I have this whole back end community built um, around the course. So I'm excited to see where that goes. If you're interested in that, please message me on Instagram, DM me, and I can send you the link to sign up for the wait list for the next cohort that I'll be running uh, at the beginning of next year. That's awesome. James, I appreciate you. I know you got to get going. Um, but Every time I talk to you, uh, I, I feel, and I want to give you just this quick moment of gratitude, how uh, authentic you are. I love hearing the story and, and how you're playing, you know, the music and the, the, the financial background and then just taking action. And I think something like that, like moving to, to another country, moving to the States, you know, and then getting in and taking action and, and buying a business and then buying the next business. And that is really, um, unlocking so much value for so many other people that like you said analysis paralysis are then drafting in your wake and i think you're creating an impact um that will impact generations not just your family but all these other people that are able to sell their businesses or buy businesses and so i just want to give that moment of gratitude for you uh and to you uh thank you for doing that i think it is something that's incredibly valuable as well as sharing that time uh with me and this audience here Thank you so much, Jake. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives 
or me personally at jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.